This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible. Welcome to A Study in Literacy. I'm Luke. I'm Jill. And today we have another guest interview since the one with Jeremy went so well. He <laughs> is a man from uh, from Banbury, <laughs> attended the University of York, gained a joint honours degree in biology and computer science, saying on his website that he can reprogram your cat if you wish. I would He's, get a cat so he could do that. Oh, I have a cat and I would like you to reprogram her at some point to be a little bit more cuddly. <laughs> He's the man behind Wardini Books in Havelock North and Napier, run alongside his wife Louise and their son Max. He is a magician, hypnotist, bookseller, and author of such books as Brass Witch and Bot, The Clock Kill and the Thief, and The Traitor and the Thief. He has served as a Royal Marine Commando for Great Britain! Police officer, evil magician, to rival that perhaps of the Dark Lord Zagrathrax, perhaps, and even a creature of undeath. Winner of the 2016 Storylines Tessa Dudier Award, 2018 Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best Youth Novel, 2018 Storylines Notable Book Award, and a finalist in two categories at the New Zealand Book Awards for Children and Young Adults. He is the magical, the mystical, the fantastical, the comical, fictional, and mechanical, Gareth Ward, the Great Wardini. Thank you. That was uh, probably overdone as a welcome. And I'm not, I'm not sure I am mechanical. <laughs> oh, I mean, we're all made of some sort of mechanics. Okay. Yeah. It's awesome to have you with us. A pleasure to be here. Uh, Jill has been excited about you joining us for a yeah. little while. Uh, yeah. She's much more of a book nerd than I am, though I okay. have plenty of interest in literacy and such things. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the clockwork elephant in the room, steampunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that come about for you? Really, when I was writing uh, The Traitor and the Thief, uh, it was originally going to be a Victorian setting, mm-hmm. and then I started adding in some fantastical sort of machinery and science that was beyond what they would have had, and so sort of by default it became steampunk. Right. Because I, I really consider steampunk as a Victorian setting with more advanced technology than they would have had in, yes. in the actual time. Um, so it just sort of naturally gravitated towards steampunk, and, and as I started to become more involved in writing, I, I, I found it was a genre that I gravitated to, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's got a lot of appeal. I think the aesthetic is part of it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's great, you know, and we've been to like the Thames Festival, uh, sorry, not the Thames, the uh, Omaru Festival for oh, three mm. years, I think, and it, it was fantastic to see all the costumes. And we were supposed to go to Thames this year, but it's just been cancelled, unfortunately, oh. but because, hopefully next year. Because yeah. of, as he gestures to everything around him. <laughs> yes, yeah, because of 2020. Because of 2020. <laughs> yeah. My dad's just moved down to Omaru. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so that gives me a good reason to get down there. Oh, yeah, De- definitely go for the festival. It's fantastic. And you, you walk around the Victorian court, and there's people dressed up in weird and wonderful costumes, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just it's like you've stepped into a different world, you know, for that for that festival period. It's brilliant. I had no idea that it had become at one point I read uh, that it's the steampunk capital of New Zealand, um, uh, the world of the world. The world. I, say, I didn't know it ever wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's a New Zealand thing to, to, to claim being like when we drive up to the, the mountains, you know, you go oh, yeah. through um, You're on the, top trout, of the, world. the trout fishing capital of the world yeah. and then you go to the carrot capital of the world. Yeah. So I think we like to claim things as Well, as we, the world, we are we? the only country with an officially recognised wizard of New Zealand. 
We're the only country in the world that the government recognises him as the wizard of New Zealand. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, yeah, I was doing a bit of research for uh, my Shadowrun New Zealand writing project, and uh, yeah, turns out that he's officially recognised in a you know sort of honorary degree. Uh, I don't think the government would go quite that mad. There's hope. Maybe yeah. they will. We can hope. <laughs> we can hope. Uh, so I've got I've got plenty of questions to ask, but cool. Jill, have you got anything in particular? Yeah, mine were all pretty much related to the book that I read. It almost made me late for work at least once. Excellent, good. Um, I don't know if it is good because then you actually have to stop it. Although the last oh. day I timed it and I got the ending right on when I had to leave, I was like, "Yes, go to work <laughs> just in time." I know what happens. Brilliant. Um, my main point, well, not main point, but one of my main questions I wanted to ask is. Why York? Like, I love that it wasn't London because I don't like London. Yep. York, I would have moved to if I didn't have my job and life set up in Edinburgh. Yep. I loved York. It was amazing. Why did you pick it? Well, I I picked York because, I mean, it it is amazing. I went to university at York, so I felt I had an affinity for the city. And I guess that sort of part of the problem of being in New Zealand but writing my stories set in, in the UK is that I can't really easily visit them, so I have to pick places that I know really well. So I picked Oxford in the first book because I grew up near Oxford, and then I picked York um, because I went to university at York, so I was there for three years. And, and I love the city, and, it, and it's very, it's got all the historic and old buildings, and that's what I love about sort of the English settings, I guess, is that you can put in that fantastic architecture. So, mm. so I picked York, as I said, because, because I, I knew it well, and it, it just had the right feeling for this story. It mm. did actually it fit in very well. But I would, I would pro- possibly, I, I perhaps need somewhere else to set a new, new novel, and Edinburgh might be one because my sister lives near there. So I don't know it as well as I do the other places. But I it's, think it's Edinburgh a great... would host a book very well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's one been of plenty set there, well. but I, th- I think it's got the right characteristics. Uh, when I visited my sister, we we went on a, a tour of basically they call it what do they call it like the underground of Edinburgh and there's all yes. these tunnels and things that are all under mm-hmm. the buildings where people used to live and it, and you know it just lends itself to a story really it does it does with the underground I loved um, uh, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman yeah he yeah. did an excellent job of making the underground come alive with all sorts of stuff yeah and you can just imagine these little communities of fantastical creatures and people yeah. living down there absolutely it, it is like a whole new world because uh, in 2005 we went over to England mm. and me as a little kid was like oh okay it's like a whole new world down here it's yeah not abs- like it's not like the up above no it's definitely not no <laughs> I managed to avoid the underground yeah so that I was don't, that- and so I don't do caving or anything like that no. and when everyone goes oh come on the tour it's like yeah nope <laughs> it's not happening <laughs> so that was that was why I, I yeah. picked York and, and, and sort of the Minster was at York Minster is this fantastic cathedral and even mm. if you, you're not religious when you walk in there you just get this sense from it um, you know I'm, I'm part of it I, I used to go there quite regularly and, and you just marvel at it you think how on earth did they build this all yeah. these years ago yeah. without cranes or really any modern yeah. technology so you know that sort of forms part of the story as well yeah. and also even conceiving of the scope of how massive these things are. Yeah. Mm. Uh, like, even going back to things like the pyramids. Like, who was like, I'm going to build a giant triangle. Yeah, That's with, what with I'm gonna nothing do. to help me hoist it up but people. <laughs> Except people, yeah. <laughs> but I have a, an endless resource of slaves, so yeah. that's fine, you know. I think that's how it got done in the olden yep. days, wasn't it, really? Yep. And a, yeah, and cruelty. And a, and a surplus of whips. <laughs> yes. 
so you're called the Great Wardini for a reason, yeah. because I want to touch on this. How did you get started as a magician? Uh, well, I've always been interested in magic, from even from a kid. You know, it was, I, we always had this magician called Paul Daniels who was on the TV every Saturday, and I used to watch that. And then when my children were little, they, they watched a magician on the television, and they said, oh, we, we had friends coming around, can we do a magic show? So I learned a few bits, and between us we did this magic show, and we called ourselves the Great Wardinis. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and the highlight was we made, we made my son disappear, and it was it was it was really good actually. It was the highlight. Wasn't it? it was the highlight. <laughs> did, wait, it, did he get found again? Yeah, yeah. It was it was oh. quite basically. We had uh, we had this hollow table, and um, we said he was going to make some chocolate disappear. So we gave him the chocolate, and then poured this blanket up. And people thought, oh, he's just going to eat the chocolate. And then when we dropped the blanket, he was gone. And it, <laughs> it you know only took perhaps a split second for people to realise, oh, he's gone in the table. But for that minute, there was that. Oh, yeah. factor on people's yeah. eyes, and and that probably gave me the bug. You know, just getting that moment of of you know wonder. I guess yeah, that's the sort of thing that um Darren Brown says. Uh, yeah. I watched an interview with him. Have you seen him before, Jill? Nah. Uh, he he styles himself more as an illusionist mm. than an outright magician. Yeah. But uh, in an interview, he said that that wow factor of the wonder in people's eyes yeah. is a huge draw for him. We, we saw Darren Brown live in Nottingham, I think it was. And, and, <gasps> oh, yeah, you lucky He's soul. fantastic. And yeah. I've read, I've got a few of his books, uh, uh, and he's a very, he, he does, he calls himself a mentalist, really. He does stuff mm. with the mind, but he's actually a really adept magician. He started off yeah. doing cards. And, so, yes. and I've got uh, some of his, he's written some books specifically for magicians that aren't really widely available. I've read mm-hmm. a couple of those. So a lot of the stuff that he does, claiming with mentalism there's there's a bit more to it than he, yeah, he says but, but his real magic is is making people believe that he can he can tell you what thing to pick by your body language when perhaps he's used a different method <laughs> yeah there's and he, he even does that he lets it slip on purpose at a lot of his shows where he says these things that i've done during the show that have influenced you yeah it's so much fun to watch one of his shows again and go are oh, you Sneaky, yeah, <laughs> you did. Well, He's very, very good at it. Well, when we saw him live, we sat, we were sat behind these people, and at the interval, we heard them discussing this trick, and they were coming up with all these, like how he'd influenced and done this and done that. And as a magician, I knew exactly how he'd done mm. that tr- that particular effect, and it wasn't anything that how he'd portrayed it. <laughs> yep. But obviously, I didn't say anything because that spoils the wonder. Yeah, but, but you know, but it was interesting to see how. How his skill in, in, in convincing people yeah. to, uh, yeah, yeah, that he's done done it one way. Or smoke and mirrors, but that's yeah. what magic is about, really. The biggest yeah. secret that isn't a secret with magic is that uh, magicians generally, they draw your attention to the wrong place. Absolutely. They draw your attention somewhere else while yeah. they're doing something. Yeah. And that's how most, yeah. how a lot of yeah. it seems. Misdirection. And in, like, The Traitor and the Thief, I have this sinister magician character. And part of his the stuff that he does is he's training these these children who are who are uh, training to be spies about using misdirection to get what they want. You know? wow. so, and, and actually, that's sort of loosely based on truth, because the CIA, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have like some of the best magicians training their operatives so they could, so oh. they could misdirect people and you know, sneak things I and sneak see. that. So, yeah, yeah. So make, it sounds ridiculous, but it makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do magicians, like, can you talk to a magician and find out how they do tricks, or do you keep your secrets from other magicians as no, well? No, most magicians will share stuff generally, I think, yeah. if, if, if you're keen about it. But me, as a magician, I don't generally want to know how someone's done something, because no. there's, there's not a, a magic trick in the world that's better for knowing how it's done. You know, when, when you don't know, you come up with all these possible, wonderful creations, and when you find out, it's probably way simpler than you thought, yeah. Yeah. and it just it just has an anticlimax. So mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd much rather not know how a trick is done generally. The mystery and the wonder. Yeah. 
yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is, yeah, and I like yes. being fooled, you know. I yeah. like the story making you can make up in your head about how amazing oh, someone is because yeah. they did that instead of going, yeah, I just looked in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty much it, really. You know, uh, you know, it, 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 sometimes it can be literally that simple. Again, going back to Darren Brown, he was talking about a, a routine he did with cards in a restaurant where um, the card ends up underneath someone's wine glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he'd tried to come up with all sorts of fantastic methods for doing it. And in the end, he just like put it under the wine glass when he was dis- distracted right. with something else. Yeah, you know? And I, I've, I've done a similar sort of thing where yeah. um, I learned this magic trick and there's a really sort of blatant move in it. And, you, and, and when you're learning it, you think this is never going to work. And mm-hmm. then when you actually perform it, 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 if you get your timing right, it works perfectly. But it's really just like literally taking something in front of them and putting it in your pocket. But if you time it right, they don't see. Yeah. It also works in your favour if someone knows that you are a magician, that you're doing a trick. They want to be fooled. Yeah. Because yeah. that's the aura of it. Uh, some people do, and some people want to catch you out, so they're the hard ones. Yeah. Yeah. I always aim to, at like, the start of a magic show, I'll be like, no, 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 I'm going to see how they do that. Within, like, two minutes, I'm like, oh, look what they're doing! <laughs> so let's, let's pull it back to books. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've, I really wanted to go into the magic thing, because I've always loved magic, yeah. and my cool. dad used to do stupid little tricks that somehow I got fooled as by a kid, but it was a lot of fun. Um, so writing versus life. How do you balance the two when you're writing a book and, um, and prepping it and putting it out there to get on the trail to get it published and, and put together? How do you balance that versus like Bordini books, for example? You've got yeah. that to do and then you've got just life in general. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot easier now. Um, when I started, because we were, you know, we were running the bookshops, in fact, we'd, we'd just signed the lease for our Napier shop, so that was our second shop we were opening, and I, f- I found out that I'd won the, the Tessa Duda Award, so my book was going to be published. So, like, that was one heck of a year because everything came at once. So I was, <laughs> I was trying to, like, edit that and get that ready to be published while painting the shop and fitting it out with shelves and <laughs> everything else. So, so it was pretty full on. But now, fortunately, um, I, I sort of mostly get time to write, so I'm not in the shop so often. I, okay. I, I sort of, I'm not working full-time in the shop. So, so it's, it's much more balanced, really. Right. Yeah. So it's sort of uh, naturally found, you naturally found your right footing. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think really, you once uh, The Traitor and the Thief won the Tessa Duda Award and it was going to be published, you know, that was my foot in the door. Mm. And, and, and I figured at that point, it's so hard to get into, in, you know, to get something professionally published that I figured you've got this one chance and you need to try and kick the door open. Uh, and right. if you don't do it now, you're never going to. So mm-hmm. I, I really focused on it from that point, really. And uh, now you're a free books deep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't make any money from it, but it's it's you know I I love I love writing and I love it when people come up to me and tell me how much they've liked the world that I've created. Mm. Something that's just come purely out of my head. You know, I, I yeah. think that's great. And you get kids coming up and talking to you. And indeed, adults. One of the things that surprised me is the, the most is how many adults have read my books and loved them. You know, mm. uh, they're always coming up and saying, I, I loved it. When's the next one out? So it's yeah. that's great. You, for example, Jeff. Yeah. I love young adult books. They're amazing. Uh, well, I think they are. I mean, I started reading sort of YA books really when my kids were that age because I wanted to vet what, not vet mm. what they were reading, but I wanted to see what they were reading yeah. so I could be part of their life, I suppose. And I just fell in love with the genre because there's no, there's not really any dead sort of 
areas in in a, in a, in a, in a, in a YA book because you've got to keep the attention there. So so it's either full of intrigue or full of romance or full of mystery. But whatever happens, it's just got to keep your attention all the way through. Whereas yes. I find with some adult books, they can you know be a bit floppy in the middle and a bit boring. You start losing your attention, but it just doesn't happen on YA books really. And sometimes with adult books, I find you look at it and you're like, it's going to take me a month to read that surely you could have edited down a little whereas yeah. young adult books you know that they're not going to be too too long no they've got to be edited yeah. down and I find that as well with with yeah with grown up books sometimes you think yeah this you know not it needed a good edit because it probably had one but you think yeah you could, you could have told that story a, a lot more succinctly yeah. but maybe that's the YA author coming out in me <laughs> that I think yeah that's a great story but you could chop it down and get, yep. get it zigging along at a, a, a bit more of a pace so yeah I, I think I think they're great mm. was Trader and the Thief the first book you wrote or was it just the first one that got noticed it was the first one that got published I'd written sort of three or four before that but I, I think it, that's just your apprenticeship you know you it's like no one would like turn up to an all-blacks game never having played a game in their life and say <laughs> oh I brought my boots can I have a game you know you've got to you've got to play for your school team then your rep team and you know you've got to put yeah. in the hard yard so I think it's the same with writing really for most authors you, you've got you've got to keep trying to get better and improve your skills and at some point you'll hopefully you'll get good enough Will you ever release or rework on the first ones you worked on, um, or are they just shelved? Well, I don't. I don't think so. I think the the one, the one I'd written before the traitor. I really like it, but looking back with what I know now, I think it's too fatally flawed to 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 revive really. And then the first book I ever wrote was a science fiction one many, many years ago, and that I nearly got an agent for it in the UK, but they ummed and ahed, and they said no in the end. Um, and again, I think that's too flawed. But in that, there was this fantastic character. So that was science fiction. There was this fantastic robot character called Bot. Uh, and I, I really loved that, I really loved that <laughs> character. And I thought, I'm going to use you somewhere else at some point. And that's partly where Brass Witch and Bot came from. I, I recycled the science fiction character to make them steampunk because I loved them as a character. I, mm-hmm. I really wanted them to see the light of day. And, and, I'm, and, and I think it's perfect the way it came I'm glad out. you did because Bot was a great character <laughs> oh it's, it's fantastic I, I i love him and i think the two work really well as, yeah. as a pair because they're, they're always like firing like s- sort of sniping at each other or wisecracking with each other and i think they just work really well so yeah mm-hmm. I, I, I think sort of wrench and bought of the brass witch wrench mm. in the story i'll just explain uh the main character she's a uh an apprentice female apprentice engineer in victorian times and she discovers she can control machines with her mind and that means she's a brass witch and that they're, they're sort of um hunted down like witches of old were but bot rescues her so so she's sometimes called wrench and sometimes brass witch and, and they're just like they're a bit like a comedy double act some of the time <laughs> they're kind of i did think there were moments in the book where i was just like oh, if only robots were real i could go get me a bot <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, oh bot's great here's you, you can imagine him being you know oh, yeah. your, your best friend sort of thing uh-huh. and it's pretty indestructible so you, you know it's nice to have at your shoulder really. <laughs> you can get a robo dog now you can it get just, a robot dog. There's robot costs, chefs. Yeah, it just costs you $137,000 for a robot dog. That's all. <laughs> but a real dog's much nicer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Luke also does a tech show, so he knows about which robots are coming in and out. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've had Squatbot, RoboDog. Squatbot. <laughs> I When Jill was telling me about Bryce Witch and Bot, because I've got a big... Uh, appetite for sci-fi yeah um i love steampunk i, mean, I bought this book mm-hmm. uh, i've got a book in here uh, with me today for everyone listening uh by uh, henry winchester uh, gothic dream steampunk founded at a i hesitate to say thrift store because it's not really it's got all sorts of stuff um and i i've spoken on the show before about shadow run which is uh 
sort of like sci-fi fantasy where magic came back to the world, uh, but it's a cyberpunk setting. So mega corporations, all that sort of stuff. And in Shadowrun now, they have technomancers, which are basically like brass witch. Mm -hmm. They can control machines and stuff. So I immediately took an interest in this book, and I'm definitely going to check it out as quickly as I can. uh, If you've got a copy, and if you're done with it, could I borrow it, please? Once Ken's read it, you may. Gotcha. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, so I I love that I love hearing the sort of especially journey of how you how a writer gets into writing gets like like you asked Jill into being published. Mm. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's really difficult, and uh, you know, there's no way to say any other. You know, it is to 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 be professionally published. You know, by publishing houses is is a terrifically big ask. I was lucky; I entered the, my story for a competition part of the the prize of winning was a publishing contract and because I won I got it mm-hmm. yeah and that was the, with the traitor and the thief yeah hand on heart if that hadn't won I think I would still be unpublished at the moment because it's so hard to get into right I think once you you've had a book published and you've got a bit of a track record it makes it a, a lot easier it gives you some more credibility it does but it still doesn't I mean I've speak to lots of authors and they will still send manuscripts off to various publishers and they will get rejections because mm-hmm. it's such a hard industry but mm-hmm. it just means you get more of a shot you know rather than having your first few pages your first chapter read if you've got a track record they might read the entire manuscript and see mm, I see but you know to be you know when Brasswich and, um, and Bot um, was was looking for a home you know that got some rejections as well so it's it's not um always going to be an easy ride but i see but i think you've just got to keep working at it really a piece of advice i once heard by another writer's name is matthew colville uh he he was asked about writing he does live streaming and all all sorts of stuff and he was asked uh the the very blanket question how do i become a writer and his main answer was do it yeah, just do it. Well, I think you have to write. You have to keep. You have to keep writing and keep improving and keep getting getting better. I mean, I belong to lots of writers groups, and I see there's, there's two types of people at a writer group. There's there's the ones who just want to have their work praised and adored and you know told how wonderful it is, and then there's the ones who want to get feedback on it and mm. be told, well, this character doesn't make sense and that's a bit ropey and that. And the people who will take feedback are the ones who will get better and eventually get to the level that they need to be. Mm-hmm. But I think there's lots of other opportunities now. You know, I'm traditionally published, but you know, there's there's loads of opportunities to to you know to self pub and to put your stuff up on Amazon and elsewhere. And there's lots of news. To be honest, probably there's lots of New Zealand authors who are self-pubbing who will make way more money than I do being traditionally <laughs> published um, but it also depends what genre, genre you're in you know right. romance writers are probably the biggest grossing genre yeah. um, you know and I know a few romance writers who, who make a really good living out of it romance so. has plenty of real life appeal I think yeah and I, and I think there's I, I don't know what it is there's something about the genre people who will read a romance book will then want to read the whole series and things mm. like that so I, I think um, you know there are opportunities, but for me personally, this is what I write. It's what I enjoy writing, and it's not really about the money. You know, and it's so much fun as well. Yeah, I think that's it. I, I love writing, and even if I wasn't published, I would still be writing. So I think mm-hmm. you know, I, th- I think if you go into it thinking I'm going to make a lot of money, that's the wrong attitude. If you go into it thinking I love writing, and maybe one day my you know people will read my stories, I think that's what you have to do. Yeah. Did you ever come up against? Um because this is another piece that Matthew Kelville said, is that when you're approaching publishers, uh, don't write what you want to write, write what they want. Did you ever come up against a publisher where they said, if you were to change this into this, we will publish you? I haven't had that myself, but I know other authors have, or they'll get a manuscript back with a no, 
but we will look at it again if you change it in this right. way. And then it's up to you to, to, you know, to decide whether it, it takes it too far out of your original sort of concept that you're not happy with it or if you want to work on it. But even then, you know, if you work on it and send it back, there's still no guarantee because it's, it's so difficult. And it's not... I think the way the publishing industry works, it's not one decision. You know, basically, uh, an editor or, or possibly even an intern will read it to start with. If they like it, it will go up the chain, and then finally, it will go to a meeting where you've got like publicity and marketing and everyone else having a say on whether your book is is a go or not. Um, so it's not down to one person. You know, your edit can, editor can champion it, but if the marketing team think no, this isn't going to go, <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're up against it. So it's quite hard. Mm-hmm. So there are advantages to self-publishing because you're in control yourself. But you yeah, know, definitely. But, but the downside then is you've got to do it all yourself as well. Mm-hmm. So your your covers, I really do like. Of all yeah. three books, your covers are yeah. amazing. How much say did you have in what the covers looked like? Oh, that's a great question. So for the first one with the traitor, basically they said to me. Um, we've designed you this cover for your book. Do you like it? Because this is the cover for your book. <laughs> so that was pretty much how much I got in that one. In fact, there was one bit. Uh, um, this doesn't go on radio very well, but um, it's got these silhouetted sort of Victorian characters, and one of them was slightly off centre. And I just said, "Can we move her?" So that was my sole input. For, for those of the studio, that character I moved slightly. So that gotcha. was my input on that cover. So we the, will take a photo of all of yeah. these and put them up. Don't yeah. worry. Cool. On the, on the second book, on the, with the clock killer and the thief, they designed me two different covers and, and they, they said which one do you prefer uh, and both covers were great but but the one that we didn't go with didn't look anything like the traitor cover whereas the one we went mm. with i think it sits alongside traitor and you can see oh they're the same they're the same You've got sort of to keep series. A series together yeah well, that's otherwise... what i figured so it, so we went yeah. with that one and then with the third one with brass witch um i sort of had an idea of what i wanted and so I approached a friend of mine, Bex Bloomfield, from Little Red Robot in Hastings, who's a graphics design firm, uh, and I said to her, could you, could you mock me up a cover? This is what I'm thinking of, because I want to send it to them. Uh, and I was sort of half hoping they'd say, get Bex to do it. And they did, you know. So, so she, they didn't like... Not they didn't like... The, cover, the way she designed it, and on the, on the original one, we had sort of bot with his arms folded and wrench with their arms folded back to back sort of you know oh, uh, and they yeah. said they didn't like that they wanted it more front facing so she reworked it but they liked her sort of characters enough to, to go with it so I think she's done a fantastic job she has done a fantastic yeah, she, job yeah she's brilliant and apparently she's done the, the rough sketches for the sequel but I haven't seen it yet because they have to go to the publisher first mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, can't wait to see yeah no I can't either <laughs> at first glance of Traitor and the Thief it looks like there's a Dalek on the front it does look a bit like a Dalek <laughs> yeah, yeah it, does, it does look like a Dalek but it's a steampunk Dalek so where do you draw, draw most of your inspiration from when you're sitting down and you're going oh, I, I want to write something do you just do that or do you have to sort of see something or do you have like something that just gets you in the mood for writing uh, well I mean generally now I've got uh, I've got sort of more ideas than I can write so I've got sort of another idea for, for a new book that's sort of mudding around in my head. So while I'm writing my current book, I'll, the other one will be floating about and slowly mm. sort of, I guess, marinating in my brain. Um, but generally when I sit down, it's just I, I know roughly where the story's going and I just write. So um, I think there will, there will be a key spark of information that, or, or some, something that will spark an idea for a new novel. Uh, but then once I've got that idea, it sort of just naturally sort of develops. Right. Yeah, I don't, okay. I, I don't particularly sort of at the minute so far have a difficulty in coming up with ideas I've, right. pro- I've, probably, I've got a little notebook of about 
20 different ideas. So, <laughs> and then it's just a question of either picking out the best one or the one that really, you know, grabs my attention at yeah. the moment sort of thing. I've got two different uh, stories that I'm yet to start. I know the beginning, middle of an end of what happens in it all, but mm. I haven't been able to actually sit down. I, was, I spoke about mm. one of them last week uh, where I had to... I, I've had to wipe the beginning of one of my one of the yeah. stories because it just it been sitting there for a month and every time I went back I was just like it's just wrong. Yeah, I don't know how it's wrong. I just need yeah. to start it again. Yeah, well, I, I find normally you know such wood I've never had writer's block. I find if you're struggling, just write anything and eventually it will just start flowing. And even if you have to scrap, you know, two or three paragraphs, yeah. it it will get going. So I, I find that the best way. But I I, I wrote. I've got sort of another manuscript that's finished its first draft that's just sitting in the drawer at the minute because I've, I had to sort of focus on some of this, well, on my current books, basically. But that the way that started, um, what I thought was going to be the end became the beginning sort of thing. So, you know, it was, <laughs> that went all went a bit topsy-turvy. So. Do you write it out of order? N- not generally, no. I, I normally write, um, yeah, it, it, write in sequence. But I, ju- I just, um, yeah, I started writing... I, no, I, I've got that back to front. I started writing the beginning of that book, and I realised the beginning was going to be the end. So then I, I, I moved the beginning to the end, and I had to write, start writing how I how they got to that position. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah, I, I don't generally write out of order, but like you, I, I always know the beginning. I always know the end, and then I, I generally know the middle and, and t- two key turning points. But it's how they get to each point. Yeah, the, yeah, okay. yeah. So I, I don't really plot it out in any great depth. Mm. Um, there's pros and cons to doing it, but I find the way my brain works is it just it tends to sort of make connections. So as I'm writing, I think, oh well, that bit of the plot connects with this bit with this subplot, and so it tends so far touch what it's all come together. I think <laughs> whether it, they would be better books if I planned them, I don't know. But I well, think, I mean, you've got three published books, so yeah. I think it's working pretty well. So well, far. <laughs> yeah, you never know. You, I mean, anything you write can always be better. I'm sure in like you know five years' time, I look back at some of these, you think, oh, that was a bit rough. I could have done that better, but you know, it was the best I could write at the time. They've won mm. some awards, so yeah. yeah. And I think that was that was something as well. I could have always self-pubbed, but I sort of wanted that external validation that I was good enough. Because I think, like most writers, you, you, you tend to suffer with um, imposter syndrome, and you think, "Oh, my work isn't good enough, or this right. is a bit rubbish, rubbish, or ropey." And the fact that it, you know it won some competitions and that it, it sort of makes you think actually it is good enough. A little so, bit of vindication. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, validation, not vindication. Validation. <laughs> Either one. That's a word. Yeah, they are both words. They have both words. And it is words that Jill can say. Yeah, we'll go, we'll go with that one. And with your stories, I'm assuming they all come together with characters and stuff. Yeah. Do you ever have a character floating around your mind and you're going, where can I put you? You're so cool, I want to attach you to a story, but you don't know which one? Like um, what? Yeah, <laughs> well, I sort of, in, in like the clock killing the thief, I had this fantastic character that made me sort of cut him out or cut her out. Oh. So, yeah, so sometimes it works the other way around. Sometimes you, you have a character that's really good. Um, and this was sort of a... It was sort of a hybrid mechanical monkey type character and, and, and called PG, and she was really great, and I loved her. And they just said, "No, take it out." So, so have, you, have you put her on a shelf for another book? Well, absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing, I guess. You know, from what you said, I, I have got that character, and at some point, I will, I, I'm sure she will make her way because I, I really enjoyed writing her. I thought she was a good character. Um, 
so yeah I, I think it, she will see the light of day somewhere else at some point but it's just stay, a question of stay tuned 2021 uh. the PJ and the thief <laughs> <laughs> no 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 we, we need Brasswitch in the book book two first well, well, I haven't book, started the other ones well, well book, book two is with the publishers so it should you know Touchwood you know world <laughs> apocalypse pending you know it, it should be out next year but. Yes, well, I, I saw something about uh, how you and your family have a zombie apocalypse solution yeah planned. yeah my, my, myself and my daughter we we sort of love watching The Walking Dead, and we were quite. And she, we both worked at the Corneval, the Scary Maze, mm. so we were quite dark. And, and so, yeah, um, we watched all the zombie movies. So, we, myself and my daughter did come up with a, a zombie apocalypse survival plan. I loved Max Brooks' uh, Zombie Survival Guide. That's yeah. a very fun yeah. book to read. I always just assume in a zombie apocalypse, because I'm a redhead, I'll just die early on. <laughs> That's my plan. I'll be one of the first ones to go, and then everyone will be like, oh, crap, something's happening. I just have no uh, productive skills for real life. That's my... <laughs> so I'm definitely going to be... Maybe the, I'll be the second one to go. That's right. I think Gareth will still be... He'll have his thing put in place, yeah. a survival guide put in place, so yeah, absolutely, you can yeah, keep yeah. going. Yeah. My friends and I do actually have a, a genuine plan. We, we we sit down one day and we spend about eight hours just being like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're gonna do that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. My, right. my actual plan for emergencies was literally putting two bottles of wine in my emergency grab bag uh-huh, and that uh-huh. was it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, I mean, die happy, right? Yes. <laughs> Um, so when we've been talking about characters that you've had, that you've been excited about, yeah. that you've had to put in a different one, yeah. are there any characters or any settings or any events in your books that are sort of based on or drawn from real things that have actually happened to you that you that you've taken you've spun it into some yeah. sort of fictional way? Yeah, there's there's various bits. Um, like in, in The Traitor and the Thief and the Clock Killer and the Thief, there's, a thief, there's this character called Noir Majors, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who's this sort of sinister, white-faced magician character. That's a cool name. Yeah, and he's basically based on a character that I played at Corneval. So I, I played this this sort of sinister zombie magi- magician called Majus Noir, and, and <laughs> I hypnotised people and things like that. So when I was writing the book, I knew I wanted this... Um, this sinister magician in the story, and because mm. I played this character for five years, you I felt knew I character. knew them really well. So it just sort of made it quite simple. And then there's there's sort of bits um, in the traitor and the thief that these kids are training to be spies. It's quite a militaristic sort of training establishment. Uh, and there's sort of bits of some of my instructors from the Marines in there, I think, and, and mm. a bit of the military humour. So yeah, there's bits in there, but no one other than sort of noir majors. I don't think there's anyone that I've, I've Take them wholeheartedly and put them into the book. But yeah, <laughs> but, you, cool. but you steal bits from you know if you see an interesting character or someone has a quirky speech pattern or um, things like mm-hmm. that, you, you just try and make a note of that. I think oh, I'm going to use that at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read a book with like an amazing character and you've thought, oh man, I wish I'd come up with that? Uh, probably all the time. You know, all the time I read things and think, oh, I wish I'd come up with that idea. There's, a, there's a Jonathan Stroud does a series called Lockwood & Co, which is basically a kid's ghost hunting. And it's my favourite series, really. Uh, and I just think, oh, I wish I'd written that. So then it becomes, as an author, it thinks, how, how could I steal that idea and make it mine so it's not plagiarism? Uh, and so, I, you know, so the book that's mulling about in my head at the minute, that's really 
probably inspired by Lockwood and Co. To some extent, Brasswich and Bart was inspired by the Skullduggery Pleasant books. You know, oh, I, I love those I, books I love, so I, I love those. And, you know, I was thinking, how, how can I write a steampunk Skullduggery Pleasant? So, you know, that was perhaps one of the starting yeah. points. And sort of, I guess, Bot takes on the Skullduggery type, yeah. mentor type character. I mean, I don't think anyone would, would think, oh, I've ripped off Skullduggery, but I don't, I don't see there's anything wrong with taking inspiration from Sticking the Sticking a new skin on it. Yeah, uh, well, not even that. I think that would be, you know, that would be plagiarism. But, yeah, well, I, once again, but, like, but I think you could, you could take inspiration and take the idea and then make it your own. I think that's the important thing, is making it your own, yeah, not, mm. just, not just redoing something someone else has done. Yeah, uh, and even sometimes sticking a new skin on it could be enough for certain characters, um, like what you've done with Bot, where you've made him more... Because Skaldari was sort of a quirky character, whereas Bot, yeah. Bot is very much like a very stoic, yeah. uh, sort of talks shite at, uh, at Brasswich, from what Jill's told me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he is quite... He, they, they do have that sort of love-hate relationship. Mm. Um, yeah, and I wasn't really... I, I guess I was tr- just trying to take that sort of concept of, of sort of... yeah a kick-ass mentor and, a, and a, a younger character. So I think that's probably where it comes across. Yeah. yeah. And even Brasswood, she starts off with a whole bunch of cool stuff that she can do. Yeah, she, yeah. she's a great character. And, and really, I, you know, I wanted her to be a real positive, you, you know, female character. Um, so, and she has to deal with lots of sort of... Pr- I mean, the whole book in its essence is about prejudice. So she's dealing with, she's the first female engineer. And so she's dealing with sexism and bullying and that side of things. And then the fact that she's a brass witch, she's dealing with prejudice that way. Mm. So so the whole book really, at its heart, is is sort of looking at prejudice. And and she's she's not prepared to sit back and take it. She's just going to fight the system. Yeah. And, I, and I love her for that. Yeah. Awesome. I do too. I love it when she keeps on going... No, I don't have to be an aberration. Why is different bad? And it's yeah. like, yeah, why is different yeah. always yeah. seen as a bad thing? Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's important. I, I think, and she says, no, I'm not going to be an aberration. I'm going to be remarkable. Yeah, and, and I think she that's is important. remarkable. Yeah, the way you, ch- you, you speak about things can give it a negative connotation or a positive one. So she's going to be remarkable. And, and she starts getting the people around her to start trying to refer to them as remarkables rather than aberrations and just trying to change that mind shift. Mm. Um, but all of that is done, hopefully, in a subtle way. So, you know, kid reading the book will just think it's a rip-roaring thing about a kick-ass robot and this girl with superpowers yeah. but hopefully that underlying message of actually we need to think about how we treat people I will think, filter through I yeah. think that is something huge that young adult fiction does because um, when we were talking about last week um, I, I've noticed when I think back to it a lot of the books that I read that were YA had a lot of those underlying themes mm. of overcoming prejudice not letting people bring you down and at the time you sort of just absorb it like cultural osmosis. Yeah, absolutely. Almost. I think that, I think there is that, uh, and I think you know most good YA books will have some sort of message. The difficult bit is not ramming it down the reader's That's throat. Right. You have to do it subtle enough so it's it's not getting in the way of the story. But it needs to have that feeling of verisimilitude where it feels real. Like that it's was a great word. Thank you. <laughs> I'm quite fond of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's got, it's got to feel real. It's got to gel in the story, and it, and you've got to be careful that your auth author voice doesn't intrude you're Absolutely. not you're not pushing your message in there the it's emotion com- needs it's to be coming there. from the characters mm-hmm. but i think I've, I've i've achieved that i'm really i'm really stoked with brass witch and bot and and you know the the way that bot and wrench and there, there's this character in there um 
the sergeant in there, Sergeant Wilhelm, he's quite negative to start with, and and just by the way Wrench deals with things, she she changes his the way he feels and things right. and that, and I, and I think that's quite positive. And I think in you know you look at stuff that's happening in the states and elsewhere now, mm. and you think you know we need to be more accepted and we need to actually you know hate never. I think one of the characters in there says you know nothing for, ever got solved for the better by hate, and that's mm. absolutely true. So yeah, and having that message in the book of how you don't you're not always going to change someone's mind. Instantly, no, it no. Can, but it can happen, and yeah. it can happen over time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, with uh, sort of a meta question, moreover from here, uh, who is your favourite author? Um, your favourite book, and uh, and why have you sort of gravitated towards them? I don't think I can limit myself to a favourite author. That's just, but I'm a favourite fifty. I, lo- I love Terry Pratchett. You know all the stuff oh, that yeah. Terry Pratchett mm-hmm. did. I think were just fantastic. You know, I, I, he was. Yeah, and before him, Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams was probably one of the, the authors who really got me hooked on reading. You know, I, I love the Hitchhiker series. And then I think sort of Terry Pratchett picked up where Douglas left mm-hmm. off. Really, with that sort of quirky sense of humour. So, so I love them. As I said, as I mentioned, The Lockwood and Co. by Jonathan Stroud. That, that's probably my favourite series. I thought they were fantastic. Um, I forgot what the question was. So those are probably my favourite favorite authors <laughs> okay. at the moment. But, you know, you, I, I've just read um, a science fiction book called... I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's The Murderbot Diaries by Martha H. Wells, I think oh, it might be. That, I've heard that name yeah, somewhere. Yeah, and they're just fantastic. You know, they're novellas, but they were fantastic. And I actually, as an author, I try to analyse why this quite simplistically written book just dragged me in so much and I'm mm-hmm. not sure I've, I'm not sure I've worked it out but but that, so those are a current favorite at the moment as well maybe that's the magic of it what it is there, there is that you know the, the great writers that, that you you know you uh, I read Philip Pullman or someone or you know Neil Gaiman or someone like that mm-hmm. and you and you try and you try to think why what makes their writing so simple yet so yeah. brilliant and you, and you and you try to pick up lessons and you know and I'm not there yet but I think <laughs> just going to keep working but the other thing I understood as well only really come to terms with recently is you know I, I, I can't be Terry Pratchett and I can't be Neil Gaiman and I can't be Jonathan Stroud I can only be Gareth Ward yeah. and, and sometimes that's good enough you know I, I, you know, I will always try and improve my writing mm-hmm. but I can only write in my own style and, right. and trying to ape anyone else's style is, is just going to like have a you know negative effect yeah it would, it would just debilitate you're writing because yeah. you'll be constantly trying to replicate what yeah. they've done. Yeah. But they've already done it. Yeah. <laughs> they've already got yeah. all their prestige. Yeah. So and I think you could take those lessons from from the great authors and try to analyse what they're doing. Uh, and then, you know, or you could always get make your writing better. But uh, I think I can only write in the style that I write, really. Yeah. So you can only write in your voice as well. If yeah, you try absolutely. and write in someone else's voice, no. it's so not going to work. No, it de- definitely isn't. But that doesn't mean you can't take lessons no. from them. And, you know, I've just been sort of watching a, a masterclass that Neil Gaiman's done. And that's oh. Quite, that's really fascinating. Is it, is it good? Because I've seen it pop up in targeted advertisements yeah. in the past twelve months. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's really it's really interesting. Yeah, it, okay. it is fascinating. Has yeah. it has it served a? Uh, this is a really cool topic that you suddenly brought up. Uh, has it served uh, to actually help your writing, or has it been something that you've been watching that you're just like, oh, that's neat? No, I think I, I think it makes me think more about my writing. I think a lot of the things that he's talking about is more conceptual and high level about sort of character and plot and story. Okay. So it's, there's, there's nothing, there's not so much on the, on the actual uh, craft of making this sentence better, 
but it's it, but it is you have to understand story and write story. So there's lots of stuff bullying about that you could think about. And think how how can I take these lessons and make my next story more powerful mm-hmm. and make my characters more powerful. So I think there there will be stuff that will come out of it, yeah. but it has to like simmer in the sort of the melting pot of my mm-hmm. brain for a bit. Wow, mm. going back kind of to characters how yeah. do you keep track of characters in your mind like, did you do you need to write a list or have a like a visual aid board about what their personalities are and all that um I, i'm not too much sure about the personality because i think their, their personality as you write through the drafts they become clearer but i do have a like a, a spreadsheet of of all the characters with with the pertinent facts in it so i can check back it's not so difficult for one book but when i wrote clock Hill, mm. which was the sequel i had to make sure that things gelled and and, and, and things worked um and i've sort of got one page on the spreadsheet is a, a complete list of all the weird words that sonder uses <laughs> and also to some extent words that stanley uses or that sin uses so that they keep the same phraseology throughout the books they don't simply yeah. change the way they speak right. too much so yeah I've always yeah. admired when I read books and like a series, you're like, oh, like they haven't changed the character, still consistent. who you remember. Yeah, and I've always wondered. I'm sure there's more than one way to do it. Yeah, mm. but I mean that's how I do it. I just, I just yeah. keep a list, and then I sort of once you get towards the finished product, I, I have a basically you go through lots of edits, and one of my editing cycles is trying to go through and just make sure everything is consistent with the the, the previous. Yeah, the previous books. So yeah, but it is quite hard work to to keep track of it and make mm. sure you haven't, because I guess as what well, you know, it will be two years since you've written that book, and I will have changed as an author and things as well. Mm. So you would have written other stuff in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So you just just need to yeah keep keep track of it and, and try and make sure you've, you've you've got the voice voices right. Yeah. Do you put down single words for that sort of thing, or do you write out a phrase like this character believes blah blah blah? In my spreadsheet, it depends on which bit it is. Uh, like with Zonda, I've just got a whole list of the weird words that she uses. Um, with with Stanley, he uses uh, he calls him brother a lot. So I've, I've made a note of, of the sort of t- phraseology that he has. For some of the other characters, I would just make a note of their motivations. You know, this you know this character is motivated by the fact that yeah. they're this or they're quite cynical or what have you. So, mm. so it, it depends on the character really. Yeah. I've found that's that's been very useful. Uh, to keep track of how to write a character, uh, writing down literally their uh, their motivations, yeah. not just writing down a couple of notes or trying to be fancy. Just it is worth it to just write down this is what this person believes. This is why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, I, I do like a, a character workshop that I run in school sometimes, and one of the what it's on character creation, and one of the things that I say is, you know, what, what does your per, what, what does your character um, Tell tell people that they most want. What do they really most want? Mm-hmm. What do they tell people they're most scared of? What are they really most yeah. scared of? Because what they're, mm. they're out. You have your external motivations and your Absolutely. internal motivations, and they're not always the same. And quite often in, in a story, you, your character thinks they need. I don't know, wealth to be happy, mm-hmm. but through the story they'll actually discover what they need to be happy is friendship or whatever it right. is. So, so they have the thing that they think they need to get to their goal uh-huh. and then they will discover the thing that they actually Doesn't need to get to their goal. doesn't just have to be what's like, um, like you said, how what do they tell people they want, what yeah. do they really want, yeah. have it for themselves. Yeah. Uh, so that, that sort of helps you, I guess it would help you wrap up a story arc for a character where you can be like, okay, I've written down six months ago that this is what this person really needs to be yeah. happy yeah absolutely yes yeah, so you've got their, their their i guess their external goals and their internal ones mm. so yeah and, and that's quite a good way of doing it because then it keeps keeps you on track as well yeah definitely do you read your books before so, so you've written the two and the yeah. trader and the thief yeah 
Before you write the third one, if you haven't already, will you reread those first two, or do you know what's happened by memory? Well, so I'm writing the third one at the minute in the Traitor series. Uh, I haven't reread these two, so, but I, uh, so basically, I know enough of what's happened to get the first draft mm. done. Before I go through any sort of serious editing, I will read them both again, and I will make copious notes about little things that I've forgotten because it sounds really weird but you can't remember your own book I've, I've had like kids come into the bookshop and start talking to me about a certain bit in the book and I think I can't even remember that scene or writing it you know which sounds really bizarre and, I, and I've heard authors say that sort of thing before and, I, and before I was an author I could never understand that I was mm. like how can you not know your own book Until there's a lot of you. words but, in but, it but now because your brain is like three books down the line yeah. or in a different series or yeah. a different place you, you have forgotten it whereas as a, as a, a reader you know i I'm, i probably know books about you know uh, lockwood and co that jonathan stroud can't remember because mm. i loved it so much you know so I, I, th- I think it's hard so yeah i would definitely reread them both uh, and make copious notes to, to a to make sure that it they all flow properly but also there will be little bits in these books that i can bring back you know, into the third book, and and it will all sort of tie it all together. And mm. I would give the impression that I had this plan all along, and I was a really clever author. Whereas <laughs> really, I've just suddenly thought, oh, that fits really nicely in there, so I'll put it in. Yeah. So as I, long as you can look clever as an end result, that's all that yeah. matters. Yeah. But occasionally, also because because this wasn't planned as a series, it was a, it was a standalone book, and then I read the <laughs> next one, and the, you know, sometimes you think, oh, if only I'd done that in the first book, that would work really well here now. But you know, what's done is done. Do you have an, like an end number of how many books you think each series is going to no, be? No, not really. Well, I'm writing the third in the Traitor series, and I think that will be that will be the final book. I think that will wrap it up. Mostly um, because I don't think my publishers will want to... I, I mean, they haven't said they want the third one yet, but um, I'm going to write it, and hopefully they will take it. Because every book in a series sells less than the book before. So your mm. first book will sell the most, the second one will sell less, and so on and so forth. So you're on diminishing returns. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think unless you're, you know, uh, really, really famous, whereas people are going to buy the whole series. Yeah. Uh, y- and then y- they'll read, like, the 16th, and they'll y- go back yeah. and buy all the <laughs> yeah, previous yeah, 15. Yeah, sort of on a bit of a hiding to nothing. Yeah. But, but for my own peace of mind, I know that this story isn't done, whereas the third book will wrap it all up quite not necessarily completely neatly because I don't think any series should ever be wrapped up completely neatly because no. I think that's that. You need some questions. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and I think you know you want to lead the reader making their own conclusions, but I think the third book will will settle some issues with sin and will leave it at the right place. So, yeah. That said, if suddenly, suddenly someone wanted to make the film a traitor and the thief and it became really popular, I could definitely write more books <laughs> in the series and a spin-off <laughs> series. You know, don't get me wrong, but I think that three would be a good number for that. And with Brass Witch. Uh, when we pitched that, we pitched it as a three-book series. We published a sign for two. But again, I think um, I would like there to be a third. So in the sequel that sat when we published at the moment, there's a real cliffhanger ending. And they might say, no, we don't want this cliffhanger ending. You need to wrap it all up in this book. So we'll just see what happens. And then that. you can go, ha I fooled you <laughs> into giving me a third book. I do like trilogies as a reader. I don't yeah. know, there's something about getting a it, trilogy. It and, feels yeah. complete. Yeah. And it's more than one set. book, which is amazing. Yeah, and then you get the cute little box set yeah. that you pay extra money, even though you've got yeah. the first two books, you yep. need to buy the three and the box Because it's set. got the special edition cover. And it's got the nice little box set that all looks I, I, nice. Personally, I don't know why, but I think trilogies work, work well. I, I always feel 
slightly shortchanged by geology. Yeah. I was thinking, no, there should have been a third one. Mm. <laughs> I get really annoyed when there's four as well. It's like, couldn't you have put that in three books? Like, yeah. trilogies yeah. look better. I think there's something about odd numbers is, is, yeah. is, is good in books. Or if there's five, that seems to work. But yeah, It does work. Five but, is um, good, yeah. yeah but yeah. I, don't, I don't know. For me... I think, yeah, no. three, three, three Over three, I have to think about if I really, really like it as to whether I'm going to keep buying the series or not. Because that mm. normally means there may not be an end point. You may still be buying books, like 18, 19 books down the track. Yeah, Wheel yeah. of Time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that series is like 18 books or something. Yeah, yeah so I think there should, there should be a third one, but um, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. Yep. What would you... So, <laughs> this is a fun question... Which one's your favourite child? I don't think I can do that. You know, it's a bit like you, you can't say which one of your kids is your favourite. You know oh, my parents those. can. Sorry? My parents can. Oh, OK. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't. So, uh, I mean, yeah, Traitor holds a place dear to my heart because it was the first one to be published. And, and you know, just I could still think back to the excitement I, I, I had when I heard that I was going to be a published author. Um, so, so that was great. Um, I like Clock Hill because I think it's probably, you know, for me personally, I think Clock Hill is better written than Traitor because I learnt a lot writing Traitor. Mm. Um, and then I'm, I'm, I'm just really stoked with Brass Witch because I think it's a, it's a great book and it's got a great message. So you know, I, can't, I can't really pick one. Of them, yeah, no. <laughs> you pick all three. three. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what is, I, I ask, I'm going to ask this of every single person we interview, mm-hmm. what is a question that you've always wanted to be asked but you never get asked? Um, and then, what's the answer to that question? God, that's a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> what is a question? I can't remember. I, Jeremy's was um, uh, who his favourite film director. Yeah, which were. I mean, I admit, I would never ask a poet what his favourite yeah, film director is. Never think to ask it, which is why I asked the question. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I can't think of one that I, I've. Uh, there is a, something that I've really been desperate to be asked, mm. uh, uh, and. I, I haven't answered, so I, I, I don't think there is one, to be honest. Okay. You know. So give, give it a few years, and when you've like had few... five, six books published, you yeah. might be sitting there going, I always wish someone would ask me this question. <laughs> well, I, I think what you tend to find is, certainly when you go around the schools, you always get the, asked the oh, same yeah. questions. You know, mm. you know, or, so you just get used to them, really. And, and occasionally a child will come up with a real brilliant question that you haven't had before, and, it, and you're so delighted because they've, they've obviously thought about something or seen something in your books that you haven't seen. and okay. they, they pick something Kids out. are good like that. Yeah, yeah. And normally when they do that, when they pick out some really, something really intelligent in your book and make this really fantastic connection, I always just pretend that that was my intent all along rather mm. than say, I hadn't thought of that before. <laughs> oh, yes, I deliberately put that in because I am, you know, a great <laughs> author. And, uh... <laughs> I, it'd be a great way to, um, to, to make kids feel really good when, when they see something. Have you, here's one then. Have you ever been, like a kid has said something like that to you and you go, I never thought of it that way, genuinely, where they've spotted something that you've done that you thought, oh, wow, I didn't... Yeah, I have had that experience. I can't think of what it is now, but I've, de- <laughs> I've definitely had that, where they- they've seen a connection in the book that I hadn't mm. consciously intended. And I will say that because, you know, there may be, you know, I, I, being a hypnotist, I think your subconscious is really powerful. Right. And so it may be that, you know, at some point my subconscious has made that connection and put that in there. Um, but... 
Yeah, and you hypnotised yourself while yeah. writing. Well, yeah. I, I think you know, you br- I think my brain works on it all the time, even when I'm not consciously thinking mm-hmm. about it. So, so it may be that it's made the link, and that has sort of permeated into the writing. But there, there was definitely something in Traitor, and I can't think what it is off the top of my head, where, <laughs> where a child has ma- had made that comment and seen a connection, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's really good. I wish I'd thought of that. Wow. <laughs> now you can claim you did. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll if I can remember what it was, we'll flip uh, my uh, my question from a moment ago on its head for yeah. the final question of the thing. What is the question that you're constantly being asked? Where'd you get your ideas from? Where'd you? Oh, yeah. see, I had that on my list, but I didn't ask okay. it, and I'm really happy that I didn't now. <laughs> All right. Yeah, because it, everywhere, anywhere. Yeah, yeah I, I don't really know where my <laughs> ideas come from. Some, something, you know, it could be. There's so many different inspiration. You, know, you could see someone walking down the street and thinking, "What's their story?" Yeah, you know, I could see a bit of technology and think, "Oh, that that's interesting." What um, if it was made of? Cogs. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in in um, in um, Clockkill, they have these fantastic sort of armoured suits that are made out of stuff called non-Newtonian liquids, which, oh, are, which yeah. are basically, you know, it's a, it's a material that when it impacts, it immediately hardens. Another one, yeah. which is like loosely based on facts. So, you yeah. know, just a little thing like that, you can watch a YouTube video and think, "Oh, that's awesome! How am I going to put that into Absolutely. my book?" So, yeah, it, the ideas just come from everywhere. It's just what yeah. it's just whether you choose to to see them and do something with them. Well, there you go. That's a pretty awesome message to end on, actually. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Don't ignore your ideas, people. So, Gareth Ward, Wardini Books, go and go and give them some business. Go buy some books. Yeah. Uh, and tell him to keep on writing the third book. Yeah. And more specifically, <laughs> buy Brass, Witch and Bob. Yes. <laughs> buy all of his books, every single all one of them. them. Every single one you can find on the shelf. So that that will give you uh, inspiration to make a box set. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, well, guys. Thank you. Gareth Ward, thank you so much. Study and literacy. Keep on writing. Stay creative. This program was produced by and first broadcast on Radio Kidnappers, a community access media station. Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this type of programming possible.